But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize. But our citizenship is in heaven. Whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. We are going to be thinking about these things, these things from the book of Philippians. And in this book there is tremendous encouragement. Perhaps some of those words that were just read to us, that I've just read, and the words that are contained within this book are familiar to you. If you've been around church for a little while, there are some words and phrases and ideas here which are just fundamental and foundational to the Christian life and perhaps familiar. But there is a danger. There's a danger in familiarity. And one of the dangers is that we, we take uh, certain lines, certain phrases, certain verses from their context and we sentimentalise them and we empty them of their depth. We reduce them to a sound bite for life. Perhaps that phrase from Philippians chapter 4 verse 4 is well known to you. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. But I've heard that. It's a lovely phrase. It's a beautiful phrase. But the danger, if we're familiar with something like that, rejoice in the Lord always, the danger is that it simply becomes a motto for us to will ourselves to happiness. You know, it says in the book of Philippians, rejoice. And so I've just got to be happy because we're to rejoice. And I say it again, rejoice. That is a beautiful phrase. And there is something very profound in Paul's words there in chapter 4, verse 4. But his command to rejoice is grounded deeply in a theological reality about who God is and what he is doing in his gospel. Philippians is, in many ways, the epistle of joy, as it's often called. But the book of Philippians isn't fundamentally about joy. Now, don't get me wrong, it's a big theme within the book. And when joy flashes forth, it does so a dozen times in the book, in only four Chapters, but behind that key theme of joy, behind often what we want to grab onto when we're feeling down and when perhaps we're feeling guilty for not being joyous, behind that encouragement is something deeper. It's the reality of the gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in what God is doing through his people. The book of Philippians does call us to a particular joy. But it's the kind of joy that's not light and easy. It's the kind of joy that's deep and abiding. It's the joy that Paul had even in Roman captivity, facing capital charges while his leadership is being contested, while others are jealous of him, even those within the church. And he's joyous 
And he's writing to this church that they might be joyous, but it's not an empty, light, easy joy. It's a mature joy. It's a grounded joy. It's an unassailable joy, no matter what the circumstances. And it's my hope that as we travel through this book, all the way up until Christmas, it's my hope that what's perhaps familiar to some of us, what's new for some of us, it's my hope and prayer that it might take on a depth and power in our lives that we can rejoice. And we can rejoice deeply. The background to the book of Philippians is that Paul and Barnabas have returned from what was really a victorious meeting, a council, where they met with other Christians in Jerusalem. And in that council, a decisive ruling was made. And the ruling was that the Gentile believers, the non-Jewish believers, they ruled that they didn't have to become circumcised or adopt Jewish customs to become a fully-fledged Christian. And this is this tremendous watershed moment in the progress of Christianity. In ancient religions, and many ancient religions, they existed only within certain cultural groups and within certain stratas of society. A religion for a type of people. A religion for a culture. A religion for a certain status. This was the way in which religion operated in the first century, but this is not the way Christianity operated. In fact, there was a lot of pressure for it to be like those other religions, to be constrained to a certain culture, for a culture to be dominant. But Christianity in Acts chapter 15, we see, is for all people. If you've got um, a Bible in front of you, you might want to open up. I'm going to take us through a little bit from Acts chapter 15 and 16 because it provides, I think, a really helpful background for us to understand what's going on in this book. The ideas that the Gentiles could have full faith in Jesus was a liberating boost to the progress of the gospel. And in Acts chapter 15, we find that Paul and Barnabas, after this council, then separate. So Paul takes Silas and he embarks on what's called the second missionary journey after Jerusalem. Timothy joins them in Lystra and Paul's plan when they get to Timothy is to retrace the, his steps of his initial missionary journey, the first missionary journey, go to places like Ephesus. But as he travelled across the west in Asia Minor, he attempts to go to Ephesus, but he himself is stopped, we're told, in Acts chapter 16. So they tried to go north around the area of the Black Sea, and again they're stopped. And so effectively Paul and his colleagues are channeled west, right over the shores of the Aegean, stumbling into the gateway to Europe. When he gets there, Luke joins him. And in the middle of the night, Paul receives this vision from a man in Macedonia. The vision was of a European man pleading with Paul to come. And Luke tells us that he said, come over to Macedonia to help us. Well, Paul sees this vision. 
He didn't think twice about it. He immediately sets out for Macedonia, knowing that God intends him to preach this gospel. To preach this gospel to all in that area of northern Greece, of Macedonia. And so you have one of these great turning points in the whole of human history. As Paul sets his face towards Macedonia, Paul and his company of brothers, these four men, sets out for the the northern coast of Greece, hitting that coast and then walking the 20 kilometres to this town of Philippi. And what happens as Paul and his mates are walking, his brothers and mate are walking to that town? The flag of the gospel is being unfurled in Europe that day. And over the years, and indeed over the centuries, that gospel would take grip in that area of the world. And from that area of the world, it would go all over our globe. It would go to Africa. It would go to Asia. It would go to South America. And here's how it starts. Rome didn't know, but God did. Rome did not know what great a moment there was as those men, those men travelled. And they turned the ancient world upside down indeed. God, through that same gospel, is still turning our world upside down. The city of Philippi was not a large city. Perhaps it was around, there were around 10,000 people and it rested on this narrow shoulder of land. It was founded by the Greeks 400 years earlier, Alexander the Great. His father named it after himself, humbly. But now it's not Greek, it's a Roman colony. And so when Paul comes to this town, he comes to a Roman town, a town where the Roman law is at work, a town where the Roman culture pervades. Latin was the official language. The citizens wore Roman dress. It was trendy, it was fashionable to be Roman in the city of Philippi. The leadership was Roman, the culture was Roman. It was, it was if, if you like, a little kind of Rome out in the country. And this, this kind of sense of, of, of Rome's influence upon the city created a less sophisticated underclass. The Greek-speaking underclass were those who weren't quite, quite up-to-date with things. They were seen as a little less educated, a little less sophisticated than the Roman-speaking elites. So this underclass developed those construction workers, trades, merchants, and it's that underclass that Paul met. Paul's custom going to the city was to go to the Jews first, to go to the synagogue. And we read um, about this repeatedly in the epistles. But in Philippi, there weren't many Jews, or Paul wasn't able to find them at the very least. So where did he go? Well, we discover in Acts chapter 16 that he goes to this Sabbath congregation, the meeting beside a river outside the walls of the town. And we're told in Acts chapter 
16 verse 13 that there were this group of God-fearing Gentile women. And they were praying. And Paul comes to those women. And I'm told today that you can go to pretty well, most scholars would agree, that it's pretty well the exact same place that Paul met those women. Now we have in our church one of the world's leading experts in these kinds of things. I don't think Jim's here today, but you can ask him about it. Paul comes to those women. So Paul and his group make contact with them. And they will become the first Christians in the town of Philippi. A woman is met, a woman named Lydia. She's a merchant. She's selling cloth in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. She hears this gospel. And she believes and then immediately is baptised. And this church makes a wonderful start in this town. The flag has been planted. People becoming Christian, but it doesn't take long for opposition to the gospel for it to start. Because that is the way of Christian ministry. The gospel goes goes forth and it's opposed. And that is true for us. The gospel goes forth from us, but there is much opposition. Paul encountered it as well. And he encounters it firstly in the form of a girl. A young slave girl has the spirit of divination. The Romans were ignorant of what was happening as Paul and his men walked into this city. But this young slave girl isn't. She knows what's going on when she sees these men. She says there in Acts chapter 16, she says, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Paul says to that young girl, that slave girl, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her, for the demon that, that controls her, for it to leave. And it does. And we might think this is a wonderful thing. And indeed, no doubt that girl thought it was a wonderful thing. But not her owners. Those who held her in slavery. They're worried about, no doubt, their loss of income. And so Paul and Silas are arrested for helping this young girl. They're arrested, they're taken into prison, and they're beaten. And in the middle of the night, this bruised and battered duo are singing. They're singing praises to God, no doubt, for what he's doing, what he did in Lydia's life, what he might do in that young girl's life. And as they're singing those praises of God, a great earthquake Earthquake comes. So seismic is its power that it breaks the stocks that hold Paul and Silas. And it blows the hinges off the doors. And the gospel further invades Europe. The flag is planted more and more. And as Paul and Silas are leaving that prison, The jailer, whose responsibility it was to keep them, he cries, not come back here. He cries, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul responds, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And so when the magistrates learn that Paul and Silas are Roman citizens, their arrogance turns to fear, profuse Apologies ensue. And they beg 
Paul to get out of the city, to leave without a fuss. And so they do, but not before visiting Lydia. And as they encounter that woman that they shared fellowship with, that they'd seen converted, no doubt there were tears, perhaps even some jokes to lighten the weight of their departure. And there was definitely praise to God for this new, remarkable church. This fledgling church. This really just a group of quite different people who happened to gather again. Lydia and her household, the jailer and his household, perhaps others. A small church. A church that wasn't on Rome's radar but was God's. The flag has been planted in Europe. Indeed, the flag has been raised as just a couple of people meet together to hear God's word, to encourage one another. The light is coming to the darkness of Europe with Paul and his brothers. Small as this church is, here is God at work. And when Paul hears and knows that this small group of people are meeting together to encourage one another, he himself is encouraged. And you can see this in the letter to the Philippians. You can see it all through this letter because there is so much, so much warmth and friendliness in the way that Paul writes to the Philippians. He says there in verse 3 of chapter 1, if you want to turn to Philippians, he says there in verse 3, you get a sense of it, I thank my God every time I remember you, in all my prayers, for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. From that, from that moment, perhaps he's thinking of when Lydia believed. Paul knows that he has this connection with these people. And that, that connection is spoken about in a particular way by Paul there in verse 5. He talks about his partnership. And that word partnership, we'll explore it in the week to, weeks to come, is a, is a specific word. It's a word that we often uh, is translated fellowship, partnership. And you can see there in verse 5 that it's one of warmth. It's one of relational encouragement. And what we're going to see in the weeks to come is that indeed this word fellowship or this word partnership comes up at least five times in this book. And we're going to discover that what the Philippians had and what was going on in this small church, what was going on was, was so encouraging to the Apostle Paul as he is in jail. What we're going to see is that Christian fellowship, no matter how small, no matter how much it's not on other people's radar. Christian fellowship, what we have as we gather here this morning, as we live our lives together throughout this week, it's something so encouraging that it can lift the hearts of the apostle in prison. And fellowship is not some form of sentimentalised Christian social. Socialization. Because this fellowship 
rose on their mutual commitment to the gospel. That this small group of people, they were behind the Apostle Paul. And he knew it. And he felt it. And it was a spiritual reality that they shared in this gospel. It was more than just a spiritual reality. It was a spiritual reality that echoed forth in, in practical ways. And we'll see. We'll see that as we read this letter. And there were lots of reasons that Paul might be writing to this church. And with all the various reasons, what we need to remember is it comes from this depth of fellowship, this depth of connection that Paul had with the Philippians and this depth of connection that he has as he shares the gospel with them and shares in the gospel with them. And it sets the tone for the rest of this letter. It gives us a sense of what he says and how he says it, undergirding everything. Now, as I mentioned, Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians as uh, some years later, as he is languishing in a Roman prison. And the Philippians so care about him that they, in fact, have sent a monetary gift to aid him. as brought by Epaphroditus. And so when Epaphroditus, who um, brings the gift to Paul, he almost dies in bringing the gift to Paul, he gets better, and Paul sends Epaphroditus back. And he sends Epaphroditus as the messenger, with his letter in his hand, back to the Philippians. We think this letter was written around 60 to 62 AD. And Paul is writing this out of gratitude, no doubt, for this gift, for their generosity. He's writing uh, also to make his plans, to make them aware of his plans, to inform them that he's going to send them Timothy. He's calling them to stand united together as a church, perhaps because of their size, because the Roman culture was so dominant. He wants them to stay together. And he wants to warn them against those false teachers who would take them away from the gospel, who would lead them away into division and into disharmony. But all these purposes are undergirded by this fellowship, the fellowship of the gospel that he has with them and that they have with one another. You can see this fellowship even in the first couple of verses, there in verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. What's Fascinating, that first verse there is what Paul doesn't say. Most of his letters, he attaches his title, Paul, an apostle. But what's most significant here is he doesn't use his title of apostle. And I think it gives us a hint of his familiarity with the, this church. There's the inclusion there of Timothy as his co-author, because he shares his authority with those in partnership with him. And he and Timothy are servants, literally slaves of Christ, there in verse 1, which, given the Roman context, is quite a shocking phrase. These self-consciously free Roman citizens, Paul says that he is a slave and he's intentional about using that word. He only uses it one other time. 
He uses that word slave in chapter 2, verse 7. And you know, remarkably, crazily, controversially, who he uses it of? He doesn't use it of himself in chapter 2, verse 7. He talks about the Lord Jesus, the one who is to be worshipped for all of eternity, one for whom every knee is to bow. He took on the form of a servant, making himself nothing. And to all, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, he recognises the leadership within that church. But this letter, this encouragement is for every single person, to all in that church. He's not playing favourites. He wants this little church, this small group of people to stand united. Paul and the Philippians are in fellowship and it is a deep, theologically grounded, practical and relational connection that they have in the gospel. And it's going to shape, it's going to shape Paul and it's going to shape these Philippians. He says in chapter 1 verse, 7, uh, verse 27, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And in doing that, he sets really a theme for the book. This is how these Christians are to live, and this is how we are to live. It's a theme that Paul has until the end of chapter 2. If you've got to, work, if you've got to walk, you've got to walk worthy of a manner of, of Christ. How do you do that? Well, firstly, you are to be united. Verse 27, you are to strive for togetherness as one for the faith in the gospel. You are to have the one mind, chapter 2, verse 2. You are to think about others, chapter 2, verse 4. And how are they to do this? How are they to walk a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus, united, standing as one? Will they to have the mind of Christ working out their salvation? And that's really what's at the centre of this letter. Lord Jesus. There's no other noun that occurs more in this letter than that of Christ. It's his name that dominates Paul's thinking as he wants to encourage these believers. And there at the centre of this book, in chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, we have this breathtakingly tremendous and majestic hymn of the Lord Jesus Christ being exalted in worship and honour that the whole world and every knee might bow before him. Because Paul's encouragement to this church is Christ. It's about Christ. It's about people in Christ. It's about the fellowship of the gospel in Christ. And Paul, in essence, is saying this, but when Christ is at the centre, of your hearts and of your minds, of the life of your church. It builds a connection. It builds a connection with God and with one another and something more. It sparks a joy. A joy from Christ. A joy of Christ. Available to all in this fellowship. And that's my hope as we study this book, week by week, all the way up to Christmas. I hope and I pray that it might increase our joy as we hold up the Lord Jesus in our lives, as our hearts roam in our willingness to worship Him, amidst a culture that's dominant, amidst a culture that would want us to divide, 
Amidst a culture that would want to take us off track from the gospel of the Lord Jesus. The Apostle Paul wants to build within us a unity, a depth of faith in the risen Lord Jesus. And as we do, I'm praying that our joy might increase, that it might deepen, and that we might be united together as one. Amen. Please stand as we sing.